0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Chelsea Green Publishing, an employee-owned company, is recognized as a leader in content about regenerative agriculture, organic farming, homesteading, local food, restorative living, and diet-focused integrative health publishing expert authors that bring in-depth practical knowledge to life with books, ebooks, and audiobooks. Go to chelseagreen.com and enter code EDGE30, that's capital E-D-G-E 30, at checkout to receive a special discount on your next print book purchase. And be sure to sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date on new releases and audiobooks. Chelsea Green Publishing, cultivating change from the ground up. My guest today has been a big inspiration to me and has been a leader in regenerative design pretty much before that was even a term. Bill Reed is an internationally recognized practitioner, lecturer, and authority in sustainability and regenerative planning, design, and implementation. He is the principal in both Integrative Design Incorporated and Regenesis, two organizations working to lift green building and community planning into full integration and evolution with living systems. Bill is also the author of many technical articles and contributed to many books, including the seminal work Integrative Design Guide to Green Building. He is also a founding director of the U.S. Green Building Council and one of the co-founders of the LEED Green Building Rating System. Bill has consulted on over 200 green design commissions, the majority of which are LEED Gold and Platinum and Living Building Challenge projects. He is also a keynote speaker at major building and design events, as well as a guest lecturer to universities throughout Europe and North America, including Harvard, MIT, Princeton, and the University of Pennsylvania. I've been looking forward to connecting with Bill for quite some time, and this interview did not disappoint. We talk at length about Bill's design process and the perspective needed to remain open to the full scope and context that a design might affect. Bill warns of the dangers of going into a design job looking for problems to solve and projects to implement before understanding and listening to the place and the people in it. The insights from this interview were quite profound for me, and I hope this will spark a larger conversation about what regenerative design is and has the power to do. But before getting too long-winded on this intro, I'll turn things over now to Bill. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thanks, Oliver. Delighted to be here. Nice to meet you.
0: Well, look, I've already researched and followed your work for quite some time, but for the sake of our audience, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background? Tell us about when your passion for the environment really started to ignite and how that is translated into your design philosophy.
1: Oh, that's a long story, but I'll try to make it reasonably quick. I was um, turned on to Lewis Mumford when I was in... 8th or ninth grade in high school and I became a a regional planning geek and um, my whole idea was to be an architect and then a a regional urban and regional planner Um, I could see when I was in college though I couldn't make sense of it but planning made no sense to me because it all seemed to be dealing with zoning and uh, economic issues and political issues and it wasn't until a few years later in the late 80s that i realized that what had been missing and no one was able to explain it to me when i was in school that sustainability as a concept meaning the environment how we take care of our, ourselves was the ultimate purpose in creating quality of life so once i figured that out then it was off to the races and trying to figure out how to make apply that from the world of architecture so i was had ended up graduating with an architectural degree so my first effort was in passive solar design uh, way before the Passive House movement came out, but this was in the late '70s, mid to late '70s, and but that was more from an energy energy efficiency perspective. We moved into the sustainability movement as a concept in the '80s, and um, that's when the U.S. Green Building Council in the late uh, 1994 was formed. And one of the questions that we asked at the time as well. If we're going to talk about green buildings, which made a lot of sense, how do we integrate not just energy efficiency, but integrate all the other environmental issues that come with architecture uh, and building? Uh, How do we make a reasonably whole system of metrics? And the LEED system uh, was developed. There were six of us that founded that in 1994. Um, Even though LEED was not, Necessarily a living whole, as we would call it now from a regenerative perspective. It was a market transformation mechanism to shift the market from business as usual to at least asking questions about green. And to that extent, LEED has been very successful. Um, I would say LEED is a total, total failure about defining sustainability, um, because it doesn't define sustainability. It just it defines levels of greenness that aspire towards a sustainable condition, I think is what we could actually say about LEED. I would also say the same thing about living building challenge. It really doesn't define sustainability, but asks much deeper questions than lead does to get us to think more rigorously about it. Neither of them though are talking about what I came to discover is how does we actually one develop a regenerative relationship with the living systems that we live within. And so, that journey happened through asking the question about integrative design. So let me go back to lead. We knew that lead was just a bunch of credits we threw on the wall. But that what was what would make it effective is to integrate them. So how do we work in a siloed profession? The building profession is not even a we call it the building industry. It's not an industry. There's no CEO of the building industry. We have multiple, even up to a hundred different specialties in the building industry. How do we get out of that siloed world and work as a united front? And so that's why we developed one of the developers of an integrative design process. And as we were doing that, we asked the fundamental question, where do we stop integrating? At the building wall envelope, at the site, at the community, at the watershed, the planet, the universe? So uh, this is when it starts getting into the metaphysical realm. And began to beg the question: How do we work with these massive, large, and seemingly complex systems in an effective way? And that's what leads leads us up to this discussion today, Oliver. Is, you know, how do we actually work so that we are regenerating life and working with the working with the systems of life, not just reducing the damage by making uh, technologies more efficient?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> I think I said that with one breath. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Very concise. Along those lines, especially as we're talking about these different certifications, uh, especially with LEED that you help to define and the living building challenge as well, they seem to serve as good metrics to make sure that you're kind of painting within the lines and not going too far out. But like you said, they don't necessarily... Uh, incentivize people to aspire to greater connection or better integration within the holes, within the communities and ecology in which they're designing for. And that's something that I've become really interested in is the idea of can you legislate in an aspirational way, not simply punishing going below the standards, but find rewards and incentives to get people to bypass or completely surpass Standards as they currently are was that kind of the the idea behind putting in those certification bodies?
1: Well The the certification bodies we actually hoped that they would not be made law That's actually one of the worst in my mind. That's one of the worst things that can happen because it's very difficult to change laws It's much easier to change systems within a private organization, but once it gets into the bureaucracy you're almost locked into these kind of low grade goals because the goals mm. take years to change so um, we don't consider that a healthy healthy system basically how do we participate in evolution how do we actually engage what's with what is truly important for the health and quality of life in the place we live not only for humans but for all living things that's the question and so metrics and design intentions need to be, need to address What does it take for life to live and evolve? That's really an important qualification and evolve in this particular place. And until we create a zoning or laws that actually require anybody who builds to answer that question, uh, we will not be successful at uh, a regenerative process. So how that's going to happen, that's Quite complex, but in but we've got a long ways to go before that and the first step is that we have to demonstrate that Integrating this regenerative thinking into projects is actually Cost-effective and it's what people really want when they slow down and ask themselves Well, you know what's important? so I, I could go off on a tangent right now in terms of when people are introduced to this Let me just frame it when people are introduced The idea of improving a place's quality of life, and not just slowing down the damage, as most laws and most uh, activists are interested in, it's revelatory to people, and it really motivates people to engage their place in a new way. I'm going to pause for a breath there, Oliver.
0: (laughs) By all means. Well, so. Uh, i guess did
1: did that make sense wait a minute i just want to check did that make sense what i I just said
0: it made sense to me i just hope i was understanding it correctly i guess what it's caused me to think about is where do you start the analysis process in answering those questions because we talked a little bit earlier just before starting this recording about how the questions that you ask are essential to the answers you're going to you're going to get to. So what are some of those questions that you begin by asking that set the framework and the intention for the, the rest of the project?
1: Okay. Well, the first thing we ask and we assume is that if we start with the project, we've started in the wrong place. That we need to start with the largest manageable socio-ecological system. Now, manageable is a big, that's a, it's a wide open word.
0: That's the caveat.
1: by manage. But, yeah, but but yet, anythings we manage cities all the time. How well, that's another question. But so one the first question we ask uh, uh, the, and we interview people and we we tromp around. We spend a week or two uh, basically learning the ecology of the place and the watershed and where water flows and habitat typologies and social typologies. Um, but the first thing we ask is, how big is here? That's a question that Helen and Newton Harris and the ecological Arts out of San Francisco taught us to ask. How big is here? And that is an evocative question. What's really cool is everybody knows how big here is, and it could be ten mile, twenty mile diameter area. It could depend on you know places upriver and downriver that are feel connected. We just ask questions like, is that town part of your? of The domain that we're considering. Oh no, no, no! We don't talk to them at all. We don't. Even, we don't even. Our high school doesn't even play them in sports. Mm. That kind of thing. Um, to uh, you know, w- what do they consider part of their town? Whether it's political boundaries or not. Now we know we have something to work on. So now, what's the potential of this area that we call here to be brought to be to be in a s- state situation of health? What's the potential? So we never start with goals because goals are actually limiting. We never start with problems. We don't ask people what the problems are because problems fragment thinking. You never understand. So if I ask, basically, if I raised my child by, asking, by continually harping on uh, his problems, we probably wouldn't get very far. What we want to work on is his potential. What's the, poten- what, what's the essence that, that drives him? or her towards um, a, a career. For instance, if a if a, husband, if a father wants his daughter to be a tennis player and all she wants to be is a dancer, he's probably put her on a psychologist's couch for, for a number of mm-hmm. years. So by actually paying attention to what the, the essence, the core patterns, the, the in, innermost drive of that living entity, whether it's a person or a city, we actually can work towards that and people can see that potential and they want to support that potential. So we help people see the potential, not the problems of their city or their ecosystem or their village. And then we actually enroll or engage people uh, wherever they're interested. But climate change might be one area, mobility, social justice, gender equity, uh, toxicants in the environment, pollution in the water, habitat connectivity. You name it, all those issues, there's hundreds of them. But we find the people that are interested in and energized about their their particular issue, and we bring them together. We integrate them in service of helping this city, town, village, ecosystem reach its whole, reach its potential, I mean. And that is something you can begin to see shifts Right away, because what's happening, number one, you're working at the individual level, people's ability to work together, you're working at the group level, people's ability to work is interpersonal skills, and you're working in service of the system. And we find that we need all those three levels, personal, interpersonal, and system, working in, in a coherent whole to actually create a long-lasting and exciting level of engagement. Mm. Kind of giving you a, re- a recipe here, but but um, so what I was looking for. Well, it's never that straightforward. But basically, the the principles are true. And it's what's really interesting is that we rarely get governments who are interested in this because they have their own agenda, and they're really governments are mostly about managing or or staying or individuals staying in office. They aren't really focused on the quality of life in the whole. What we find out is that by assembling groups of people in service of the health of this system this how this here how big is here the governments actually come along afterwards and say we want to play too and uh we've had chambers of commerce you know who are not interested we've had governments call us up 10 12 months later and say we don't know how you're doing it but this is the best this is the most exciting thing that's happened to this city in years we want to play
0: they always want to come on board once the concept is proven and they know it can make them look good
1: well, that's true. And but here's the other thing. It, that what's really happening is we're building a field of I'll go a little woo-woo here, of positive energy. You know, you you walk by a house with a party, you would say that's it's a good party. It has positive energy, right? You say, Wow, I want to go there. Whereas if you walk by a conference room where they're having a pretty violent argument inside, you want to stay away. And that's an example of energy. Those are both examples of energy, good and bad energy. If you create a group of people working together coherently in the service of something larger and meaningful, you've created a field of energy that is a lot faster, a lot more transformative, much more quickly than any checklist of environmental metrics. So people talk about, can you scale it? Well, you can't scale life. What you can do is build a field for life to want to propagate. And so... It's why we emphasize the idea of field building. And it's not that the metrics are bad, not that we shouldn't use those metrics. It's just that they're insufficient in themselves, unless they build a field. And those metrics actually can serve to build build a field. But here's the final point, is that you have to practice this. There's no such thing as a change management weekend or a change management charrette or a project that's going to change a community. It's basically a community that is in service of this larger potential of this system. And out of that comes the guidance for for the projects that we work on. It's not that the projects don't get built, but they get built being informed by new thinking. And then that thinking needs to be practiced forever. And so the final delivery of a regenerative project is to build the capacity and capability of the people in that place to co-evolve with each other and the place they live, the ecosystem they live within.
0: Mm, I love that definition. I'm going to start working with that.
1: That's good because that's the definition of regeneration. I mean, it doesn't matter what we call it. We call it Fred. It's just that unless we are practicing co-evolutionary relationship, and that means forever, we will not have a regenerative condition, but certainly not a sustainable condition.
0: Well, let's go back now to, since we're on definitions here, how that separates itself out from sustainability and restoration efforts. Uh, what, are we, what are we trying to accomplish beyond those first two there?
1: Okay, good. Pretty straightforward. Sustainability means that you are maintaining a system at its best. So, Maintenance is not a thriving life, by the way. Maintenance is just plodding along. And so when we make things efficient, like reducing energy use or reducing carbon in the atmosphere, let's say that we actually can get to zero. We will have just maybe luckily escaped with sustaining the planet, barely survival. You see my point?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a diminished capacity there.
1: So, so, so sustainability, as one wag said, sustainability is a slower way to die mm. because we will never reach perfection. So sustainability, as it's practiced today, is an exercise in efficiency. Efficiency means that you're still doing bad. You're just doing it more slowly bad, right? Correct. Okay. That's sustainability. Restoration gets us what we call above the line. It gets us into improving the existing condition. Now restoration, by its, um, let me give you the, the geeky definition of restoration. It, it certainly does not mean re- restoring something to its original condition, since life evolves. There is no original condition. But what it does mean, it restore it means restoring an ecological subsystem, like a wetland, a forest, beach dune system, riparian corridor, that kind of thing. Restoring an ecological subsystem so that it has the self-organizing capability to evolve. That's Mm. restoration. Now, how do we sustain restoration? Because if we aren't, if we as a community do not understand the workings of that system, why we restored it, why that wetland is important, why that forest is important, the next developer coming along with a shopping mall will say, well, we don't really need that wetland. So you rip it down or you destroy it. So, restoration isn't a permanent condition. The only way that we can have a, a, well, there's no such thing as a permanent condition, but the only way that we can actually protect ourselves from doing stupid things in the future is to continually rebirth our relationship and understanding of how life works in the place we live. So regeneration is a continual process of rebirthing, regenerating our relationship with place. And if it isn't rebirthed, let's just take an an, an, an arbitrary time frame. Every year, this is why New Year's can be a good thing, uh, and take stock of what we've done and where we need to go, we will create a declining condition. So regeneration requires us to rebirth not only our relationship with the place we live, but it also requires us to rebirth our relationships with each other. Because if we're fighting each other, we're not going to pay any attention to the system we're part of. So it means what's cool about it, though, is if you can get people to get excited about the place they live, it almost automatically takes care of, it doesn't automatically take care of it. But we then have the tools and the opportunity to begin to address the interpersonal relationships and the individual internal uh, capability to develop as as a good human being, or as a productive human being.
0: So along I those it. lines, how are you asking these questions that identify the highest potential for a place, a community, or whatever the parameter of here that you've defined might be? Do you have maybe an example you could give?
1: Well, it's pretty straightforward. You look for patterns. So the, the skill set required for this work is tracking. Trackers are basically pattern recognizers. There's lots of trackers. Scientists are trackers in their own way. Uh, certainly, animal trackers are trackers. But basically, trackers don't, don't identify uh, just one track and call it, call it a day. They actually have to identify multiple tracks to identify that the pattern actually supports their, their supposition based on the first track that they saw. So you need proof. So what we do is we look and we help the community look for the patterns that they keep seeing recurring over and over again, the deep patterns. So (laughs) I'll give you one example, a short one, a town in in the western slope of the Colorado Rockies um, had the most diverse ecosystem in one town we've ever seen, multiple, I mean thousands of feet of elevation change, fjords, not really fjords, but deep river uh, chasms, Mountaintops, mesas, pasture lands, uh, prairie lands, all in one town. They grew more crops than any place we'd ever seen. More diversity of wheat crops, fruit crops, animal crops, crops, animal herds. Um, there were more churches in this town than any place in the United States. More churches and religions per capita any place in the United States. When the Ute Indians moved to this place, they divided into bands, very unusual for the Ute Indians, multiple families of of the Ute tribe. So what we kept seeing was this pattern of fragmentation, but yet in a very positive way. They were self-organizing living niches within multiple diversity of these living niches. And so we called the core process of this place multiple self-organizing niches. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean anything to anybody outside of this town. But that town got it. They said, yes, that's who we are. And to make a long story short, is a- it actually, um, uh, they were also the hippies, the religionists, the cowboys, and the farmers. So there were four groups, self-identified groups in this town. And they were working on a school system. Basically, they were worried because they were fracturing the town into multiple sc- charter schools and homeschooling and public schooling and Catholic schools and school um, and basically they realized they couldn't afford to be that fragmented but they didn't know how to get out of it so we were invited up there to help them understand the nature of their place because everybody loved this place they loved the place they lived and I'm, I'm really cutting out a lot of the story but when we sat down with the community and explained what we had observed with their help there was a woman in the back, and she said, Now I know why I hate this place. And everybody turns around at her and she says, You know what I mean. She, she says, I don't live here, and I don't live here for a reason. I don't I love I live here where there's one church, one crop, one meandering river. And and they said, Oh, that's so boring. And she said, Exactly, that's the way I like it. And she said, You guys are always arguing with each other and Which religion is true and farming practices and organic farming and mining and the hippies with their own organic uh, food industry. Anyway, there's all this fraction, friction in the town. And they said, Well, that's what we love. We love mixing it up with each other. And she said, Exactly. That's why I live where I live and you live where you live. And don't get me wrong, I, I still love you guys. I come up here and I, you know, I party with you guys all the time, but it's not where I choose to live. Well, that recognition that they were fragmented for a reason, that this is the nature of the place. Actually, so they solved their school problem within a week afterwards, because they had actually been working on the shadow side of what it meant to be this fractious town, instead of the side that actually brought them together, which is basically a whole bunch of pioneers coming together because into a place where they loved that pioneering spirit, and yet still lived with those, 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 frac- those frictions. So, I I know I'm making this way too short, but I realize this is a short interview. So the point of this is is that you can help. Basically, you're holding a mirror up to people and saying that Natal greeting from South Africa, I see you. Because what's happening is people are seeing themselves in the mirror for the first time. It's very difficult to see yourself. And when we do that with a place, with a living system, people begin to fall in love or at least like with a system they're part of. And that's the beginning of change. Because you know we have all the technologies we need in this planet right now to heal the planet. What we're missing is the will to do so. So what we're looking for in our in the clients we work with and the cities we work with is we're out there to develop their will to begin to evolve.
0: Within this evolution, how does the built environment and our infrastructure play a key role within the interactions, the connections, and as we've been talking about the potential, the full potential of a place.
1: Yeah, well, on the short, a very unsatisfactory answer is the short term is we all need, and in each every every sheltering point is an acup- can be an acupuncture point to heal the system if we engage the people in the community. The other side of this is that there's no such thing as zoning by right anymore. You don't have a right to build a building, even if zoning gives you gives you the approval, theoretical approval, if the community doesn't want that building to be there, it's not going to be there.
0: I certainly have examples of that here.
1: (laughs) Well, sure, and so that's why any community, any building project is a community project, whether you like it or not. And so that's the opportunity of building. Now, in the longer term, we can't keep building forever and expect to heal the earth, right? We can't cover the earth with 100 million Walmarts. So, the big, the long story here is that by engaging people and understanding how life works in this place, the hope is that people will start realizing that there's a carrying capacity. Just like the squirrels in my backyard, you know, basically can only survive with so many acorns. So, we have to learn how to survive. We, had to, we The food is not inexhaustible, especially as climate change rears its head. Um, we're going to have to be very sensitive to what the carrying capacities of our place. Therefore, that will control population. That will control the way we build. That will control how we, how we act and be on this planet. But that's a long way off. But that's the long game of regeneration, Oliver.
0: Yeah, I mean... Certainly, you got to keep those longer time frames in mind when approaching any any project. Um, I'm interested in how design structures can sort of facilitate the communication, the evolution, and the completion of goals, or however you want to frame it, of the affected communities that these infrastructure projects are, are placed into.
1: Well... I mean, the, a simplistic answer is the building really doesn't matter um, in terms of what we, how we treat the environment. The lot more complex answer is, of course, beauty is really important and our community has to be cohesive and coherent, right? So when developers come into a community and have no real ownership, no, that's not the right word, no real investment in a community, they're merchant developers and they put up anything and they walk away, right, as long as they made their money. We we want to encourage community developers, developers that are there supporting the community with buildings and systems that are actually needed. So that's a pretty important distinction. So any infrastructure project, we work on billion-dollar, multiple-billion-dollar projects, sewage plants, um, uh, water projects, uh, river restoration projects, that kind of thing. But any of those can be an opportunity to bring the community together to understand the processes of life and what needs to be recovered if we damage them and what needs to be supported once we bring them back to a level of of self-organizing restoration. I don't know if I'm answering your question.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's so many ways to approach it. I was really just (laughs) looking for your perspective on that question and One of the things that I've seen you talk about in previous interviews and such is the idea of the essence of humility in good design and how that is essential to approach um, whatever the parameters are for a project or an intention before starting. How has that sort of manifested in your process?
1: Well, you know, I would like to think I'm humble, but of course, that's probably the, the thing that indicates that I'm not so... Um, I like what Kathia Laszlo, the sustainability thinker, says. Uh, Sustainability is an inside job. And, boy, it's the biggest thing we all have to work on, right? Is that um, unless we are exercising uh, love towards all life, we probably won't get into a sustainable condition, regenerative condition, whatever you want to call it. So, um, really, this work is about what we call in our practice an old psychological term, external considering. And you know, how do we consider beyond ourselves? Internal considering is all about me, but external considering means it's all about how. How does this affect life? How does this affect you? How does this affect the watershed, the oak tree? Um, we have to ask those questions. That that is the generator of any good question, Oliver. Is, is considering the question from an external viewpoint.
0: Do you have a process in which you sort of open your own perspective up to those types of questions? And do you have any particular questions that have helped you a lot in, in that kind of understanding and consideration?
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> we, we certainly we certainly meditate on, on this work. This work is um, you, you have to manage your own state. We practice as an office Who do we need to be when we go to certain clients in certain situations? Every situation is every situation is different. So we we practice that being, and uh, we've had some pretty pretty tough clients who are frankly, I had one woman say to me, "You know, I don't like you, and you probably don't like me." First time I ever met her because all the fee had been negotiated through her. Mm. Um, They're multiple, if not billionaires. So I met her the day our job started and her first words out of her mouth, you know, I don't like you. I had no, she had no reason (laughs) to say that, but apparently she did. So that really set us off to a good start. And I had to facilitate five family meetings with this family over the year. And they were the last place I wanted to be with that woman there. But in order to make them successful, we had to basically get myself into the right being state to be there. And they were great workshops. They were wonderful. And at the end of three, three years later, the woman asked her son-in-law, she said, so why doesn't Bill Reed like me? She had no memory of saying that to me.
0: Wow. And,
1: And I wasn't mean to her. I just was, I just didn't want to be, didn't want to open myself up to being told that she hated me. I mean, nobody does, right? Sure. So, but yet it was the managing of that being state that allowed her to ask that question three years later. So this work is inner work, Really?
0: I completely agree. That's a, a wonderful sort of idea and perspective on this. And I've often sort of thought about, as a role of a designer, and as I've worked with clients increasingly over the last few years, and define these parameters um, within what they're trying to accomplish, but also what's needed within the larger community and the affected connections uh, by starting to take active steps on a project, realizing that your own personal hangups and emotional issues and your possibly your own agenda or ego can be a big factor in that design process and getting in touch with sort of what part of that energy flow or that creative process you personally are inhibiting by the state of being that you happen to be in in that time is like you said it's where the internal work needs to needs to catch up with the rest of that process.
1: Yeah, and it's just not sensitivity though it's just not saying oh I feel your pain you know or uh, it that's an aspect of it what's important is sensitivity allows one to be conscious of patterns right if you're not just if it's no longer just about you if you're looking outward you can see patterns much more readily than being insecure about you know how am I doing do they like me that's um, that would be internal considering mm. but external considering is you know you, you know you are not you are not what's important. What's important are these patterns there, and you're helping people see those patterns. And then, how do we become conscious of what those patterns mean? And then, how do we become creative in solving them and addressing them? So those are those are levels of engagement that are different than just uh, you know putting your arm around somebody and saying you know I really care about you. Well, it's wonderful to care, but now we got to do something we got some work to do, folks.
0: Right. What is the verb after caring? How do you express that? How does that manifest?
1: Yeah, well, caring's active. You know, it's interesting, depending on how you define the word, but but uh, compassion is, or empathy, right? But caring is an active, uh, an active empathy. Mm. So how do we actively engage in a process of caring is, is really what this works about.
0: Yeah. Now, for a lot of my listeners, moving towards a regenerative lifestyle is a goal that that a lot of us share. In your perspective, what are some active steps that either through asking questions or identifying patterns within our own lives, can we start to make that transition ourselves?
1: Well, geez, I'm glad you don't have a movie camera. I can film my my levels of hypocrisy.
0: um, (laughs) We all have them.
1: Yeah, we do. Yeah. We all have our flat spots as a friend says. Mm. Um, well, uh, for me, uh, I and you may resonate to this. We we've turned our yard into a New England forest, right? So we're interested in, you know, how do we propagate habitat and it be an example to others? So that's at the simplest level and of course all the green technologies and energy efficiencies which we live in a very old house, so it's a little tough to do, but Nonetheless, the most I think the most important thing beyond all those surface features is how do we help build community in service of what? And um, this is where my hypocrisy comes in because I'm doing it everywhere else in the world and never at home. I'm like the you know the cobbler's shoes don't have shoes, <laughs> cobbler's kids, cobbler's kids don't have shoes. Um, but but that's my intention, um, and I'm offering this to others is to help build your community to serve um, the potential it is possible capable of both socially and environmentally the ecology as a whole the socio-ecological system how can you bring it how can you bring this place this organ living organism we call home so that it is healthy on an evolutionary basis this is a big question we need to all be asking ourselves. You know there are only 4200 cities in the world larger than 100,000 people, Oliver. That's not many. Now there're million and a half uh, hamlets, you know, cities, towns smaller than that. But if we got 2% of those 4200 cities in the world to change to become to have a regenerative internal relationship, you know, regenerative situation. Hmm. That's, that's considered by many to be a tipping point. So, it's not that many.
0: No, and, it makes it sound uh, almost reachable. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and as long as we, st- we we need to stop talking about saving the planet. I mean, we don't can't stop talking about it, but it doesn't mean much. It's very abstract. I'm going to save the planet. The question is, what can you do in your place? That aggregation is what will save the planet.
0: And I'm so glad that you brought that up because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, New Year's can sometimes be a good time to redefine the parameters and the goals and intentions in which you're working these, you know, even if they are invented uh, timeline checkpoints, they can serve as a good way of sort of getting on track or, or touching in with your compass. And what you mentioned about focusing in on you know you like you said you've been doing this work for all sorts of other communities and could possibly take more time into your own that's exactly what i've been going through as well as figuring out how much of my time to continue to devote to client work and projects that kind of take me mind and body at different times away from the community that i've decided to call home and definitely moving forward into 2019 i'm hoping to have a better balance of that because if I'm going to be offering advice and perspective on other people's regenerative development and I have somehow fallen far behind in my own relationship to the community that I've called home, I can't imagine that my advice is going to be terribly well-informed or come from a lot of hard experience.
1: Well, don't be so – don't be entirely hard on yourself because you learn a lot. I, I fall in love with every community I work in because you, when you start to understand – any place you begin, any, any body or any place you can't but help fall in love. Mm. So um, you, the the learning is tremendous, and you also have to. You also can only do. You can only lead, lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. So you got to find the opportunities appropriate. It may happen in your community, but you can encourage it to happen. Um, but give yourself a little bit of slack.
0: <laughs> um, never I refuse okay, we're good hold myself to higher standards. <laughs> uh, good
1: well good I'll support that at all of it.
0: Uh,
1: but anyway, it's you could you could, you learn we I've learned a tremendous amount and um, now i'm I may be, uh, capable of taking this home in a different way. Boston's a different area er- I live in Boston it's a different area. there's a lot of advanced thinking going on but here's the other issue is you have a lot of really good things going on that's, that's so good that people don't think they need to think anymore. Mm. And so, in a way, I try to go where there's a lot more perceived need than the places that are already doing a pretty good job, even though they're not doing an adequate job. They're doing a better job than a lot of other places. Let them keep going until they're ready to ask the question. Because you're not going to te- work with anybody until there is a re- what we call a restraint, Till somebody says, you know, we got a problem here, or boy, our city's dying, or you know, this river is so polluted, we don't know what to do. Those are the places you have let you have a leg up.
0: Yeah. People yeah, yeah. need the help. Now, you've been very generous with your time so far. I just have one more question before we wrap it up. What sure. keeps you motivated to work on this? Um, this is such a broad topic and is going to require so much work from so many people to really get our society, our cultural narrative on track with one that is no longer destructive just to start. What keeps you motivated to keep trying to make this better?
1: Well, it's a good question. I wonder that myself sometimes. I've been doing this for 35 years. <laughs> and um, and, truthfully, and I'm getting older, so it's, it's a little tough to maintain the energy level. But I'll tell you, I can't go back. You can't go back to to, to fragmented thinking once you learn mm-hmm. to work with holes. And so um, I can't not do this. Am I concerned that we're too late? Yep. I think we are already too late. But nonetheless, uh, whoever's going to be left, and there will be people left on this planet, and we all die anyway, um, how do we build that capacity for... Uh, oh for longevity and um, meaningful human development. So we have to seed it. And if, and if we're not seeding it, who else is going to seed it? So I consider this a Johnny Appleseed venture.
0: I like that. I That's so funny because it echoes a lot with what I talk about with my business partners here. It's like... There are so many bits of information and new research coming out that can be <laughs> horribly pessimistic. And uh, there are definitely times when I'm like, yeah, we've probably already crossed over the tipping point. But at the same time, yeah, you can't think in a different way when you start to see the connections on a much broader scale. And yeah, I, there doesn't seem to be a much better alternative of what to do with my time. I wasn't doing anything terribly interesting other than this. so <laughs> might, a, might as well keep going with it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, I thought, oh, I'll go, I'll go to get on a sailboat. And, uh, you know, that would last for a week. And I would say, oh, I've got to do something productive. I
0: know. See, I've so, already done a bunch of that stuff. Like, I've been traveling for 14 years. I've done all the adventure stuff. I've, you know, had a lot of those experiences that people have on their bucket list. And yeah. when a whole, it's a whole life that revolves around that, it's oddly boring. Like, you'd be disappointed. Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> well, so, but here's the other side. Here's the cool side is that I've traveled the world in in this service. So, I get to see the world doing this kind of work.
0: Yeah, that's per- exactly. That's, that's totally what motivates me to keep traveling now too, is like, how can I engage with these other communities, these other ecosystems, and have a positive impact on them? It's reignited my interest in, in traveling in general, because now there's actually something to do rather than just go and observe and see, although that is that's a right. big portion that you can't neglect if you want to do anything positive.
1: Yeah, but living, you know, I just, I've always found it, I I mean, I do the tourist thing now and then, but I always typically find it boring. What is really fun is being part of the warp and woof of the fabric of the community and working with, you see so much more and learn so much more um, by working in the community. So it's the best tourism of you. It really your is. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's beautifully said. All right. Well, Before I let you go, Bill, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and find out more about your work?
1: Uh, You go to our website, RegenesisGroup.com. Marvelous. Hope hope that's sufficient.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that should do. Well, again, Bill, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful getting to talk to you finally. I've been a follower and a fan of your work since I found it a few years ago. And um, this has been a, a very engaging conversation. I hope we can catch up again sometime soon.
1: Thanks, all. We're glad to do so. Appreciate the time.
0: All right, take care. See ya. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at and all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.